Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. Today, I'm talking with Hannah Mary McKinnon. We actually recorded a few weeks ago, and we talk about the start to 2021, which I think we'd all agree was several decades ago at this point. Hannah was a successful CEO in IT recruiting before a transatlantic move and business startup failure led her to an unexpected leap into the world of suspense fiction writing. And sometimes I get really frustrated when I see these things about, you can have it all. The amount of pressure that puts on women to think that they can have it all because you cannot be in two places at once. And I felt that. Hi, Hannah. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to start the new year with you and start our new season. So I appreciate you being here. Thank you. 2021. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) I know everybody's saying they're glad to see 2020 go, but I feel like, does the virus know that it's a new year? (laughs) Unfortunately, I think not. No, I think you're right. But there's still hope at the end of the tunnel. Hope at the end of the tunnel, light at the end of the tunnel even, and hope, hopefully as well. So since we're in the new year, do you have, I'm going to put you on the spot, do you have any New Year's resolutions this year? I think 2020 taught me to stress less about the small little things. So I'm going to take a leaf, the only good one probably, out of 2020's book and continue with that. Not sweat the small stuff and only worry about the things that I can actually control. That's going to be my great big blanket resolution, I think. Oh, I felt like for 2020, I was really planned the first time I was looking like, here's my five-year plan and here's where I'm taking my business and here's what I'm doing. And yeah, I think I'm just going to learn to be more flexible. That's that's (laughs) my goal. (laughs) I think if 2020 has taught us anything, it's to be more flexible, I think. Yes, absolutely. I like that one. You must be really flexible because you went from being a CEO to a novelist. But I think I'd like to start with just asking you a little bit about your career as a CEO and how you made your way from starting in a business and going rising through the ranks to CEO. I stumbled into IT recruitment by accident at a wine festival of all places. So (laughs) I was working as a purchasing manager for a high-tech company, purchasing manager as in buying all of the parts for motors that they were making, that the engineers were designing and, and building, and literally sending up into space, which was absolutely fascinating. But I don't have a technical background. So after doing that for a couple of years, after uh, studying business, I felt that I'd reached my level of capacity, just my level of knowledge. I didn't, I was buying stuff and I was really good at negotiating, but I didn't really understand what I was buying and what it was for. And it made me feel a bit uncomfortable. It made me feel that I wasn't doing the best job, that somebody with a technical background would be better at this job than me as much as I liked it. And at a wine festival of all places, a friend of a friend introduced me to a gentleman who had just started a year previous a new IT recruitment company. So this was in the, it was about 95. So the internet was burgeoning and everybody wanted a website and there was a lot of IT stuff going on. And the conversation went something like this. Charlie, this is Hannah. Hi, Hannah. She speaks four languages. Oh, great. Do you want a job? Oh, yeah. All right, then. And I did have a more formal interview than that, but that was really how the initial approach of landing this job went. And I got this job of, my job title was 
do everything except for sales because it was the two founders and myself. So I was the first employee. And that meant literally bringing all of the accounting in-house and doing all of that, setting everything up, setting all of the HR up, but also going down to the corner shop to get the milk for the tea. You know, it, was, it literally was everything because it was just the three of us. And it was brilliant. As I mentioned, IT was just going from strength to strength. It was, we grew like crazy. Our revenues, basically in IT recruitment at the time, if you weren't adding 50% of your revenues year on year, or maybe not 50, maybe 25%, you were basically going backwards. And so the company grew exponentially. And with that, my role did too. So I went from do everything that isn't sales to back office manager to chief operating officer and was then groomed, so to speak, to become CEO about a decade after I joined the company. And then, yeah, I was the, the big wig, the big cheese of this IT recruitment company for a number of years before we came to Canada. It's interesting that you went from a sales job, selling something you didn't even necessarily quite understand, into a job that the description was everything but sales. In the technical, in the high tech company, I was buying, I was the purchasing manager. So I was, I was buying stuff. Basically, this company was also still a startup, a ton of engineers all buying parts differently for their projects and no central person who was administering all of this. So I arrived in you know, early 20s. The, one of the only women in the company and said, okay, guys, if you now need to buy parts, you come through me and I'll sort it all out. I'll order everything. I'll get you whatever you need, but I will manage all of the purchasing. So yeah, I had no idea. I was buying resistors, transistors, magnets, all this, this kind of stuff, negotiating with suppliers. No clue what really what I was buying or what they were for. I knew they went into the motors, but that was about my level of expertise. So it was really interesting. But then going to IT recruitment or human resources, I understand people. So that was a much easier switch then to understand the, the whole recruitment process and how that worked. It definitely sounds like from the get-go, though, you were doing things that weren't necessarily considered, especially at the time, sort of traditional female roles, going from something that was very technological, going into IT, and then becoming a CEO. It wasn't. And I remember before working for the high-tech company, I worked for DuPont for about a year. And my my role there was, I think I was junior secretary. And my career path, had I stayed, was junior secretary, senior secretary. And the only difference really was the, the level of the person for whom I would be working. And that wasn't what I wanted. I, from a very early age, when I was a young teen, my dad asked me, what, what, what do you want to be when you grow up, Hannah? And I remember saying, I want to own a company. And he said, well, that's great. What kind of company? I said, I don't know, but I want one. <laughs> And that was my ambition. And it wasn't until fairly recently that I figured out where that came from. And I think it was my parents were very modern. It was often that I saw my dad, I don't know, putting the vacuum round or dusting or making dinner or whatever. And they very much shared those household chores. And that actually went back to my dad, whose mother was very sick. So he saw his father, who was born in 1901, vacuuming and putting the dust or do the dusting and making dinner because his wife couldn't because she was sick so even though my dad had two older sisters he was expected to pull his weight so he just 
did. He pulled his weight when he was a kid, when he was a teen, when he got married to my mum. So it was always very modern. But that was part of where that equality, that sense of, well, men and women are equal. Of course they are, came from. But also, I think one of the very interesting times in my life is when we moved back to the UK in the early, late 70s, early 80s which was when Margaret Thatcher became the Prime Minister. Now, politics aside, and I was eight, so I had no clue about politics, and whether you, you loved her or loathed her is beside the point. But as a young girl living in the UK at that time, seeing a woman rise to power and hold the most powerful position in UK politics basically sent me the message, without me even realising it, that women could do anything. So that was also one of those. It wasn't until recently that I made that connection that actually had a really big impact on me as a young girl in the UK. I think about that a lot because being from America, I do always think how it's so backwards that it still hasn't happened in America. And like you say, politics aside, I'm not necessarily a big Thatcher fan, but the idea that I've seen female prime ministers all over the world here in England, and that's still such a thing that just isn't happening in the United States. And yes, I, I really do think when we're saying that it'll be a big thing for Kamala Harris to be VP in the US for young girls to see that is possible. You're right. It's something that when you see it as a young girl, it does leave an impression on you and you go, oh, I could do that. Yes. So tell me a little bit about your background, even going back a little further, parents and how you ended up in Switzerland. Go, tell me more about your background as far as moving around. <laughs> All right. My mum was English. My dad is half English, half Swiss. So he was born in Switzerland, but moved to England when he was four. And years later, met my mum. They had my sister, have an older sister and myself. And they then decided in the early 70s to move to Switzerland because things in the UK weren't that great at the time. And my grandfather, so my father's mother had died and he'd moved back to Switzerland. And things were great in Switzerland, very prosperous and easy to find work. And he said to my dad and my mum, why don't you come over here? And my mum said, I'll only go for a couple of years. And they lived there until she passed in July. So we moved to Switzerland. I was one. We moved back to England when I was eight. That was my dad's career. And then moved back to Switzerland again when I was 11. And that's where I lived until 10 years ago when we, as in not with my parents, but my husband and our three kids, moved to Ontario in Canada. So I met Rob, my husband, completely by accident on ICQ. I don't know if anyone out there still remembers ICQ, uh, a chat site. And it was the first evening that I had the internet at my house. So this was back in 1999. So let me paint the picture. Dial-up modems with that squeaky noise. You could be online or on the phone, but not at the same time. Our kids would not survive this. They would absolutely not. And pictures would download in segments. So that was the internet, the state of the internet. So back in the dark ages. And this friend of mine came to, to my house, he installed the internet, and he said, I can install this program called ICQ. I said, what was that? He said, it's a chat site. And I said, what's a chat site? Because I had no clue. It was 99. And he said, it's for sad people like you who don't go out on the weekends. It was a Thursday. It was not the weekend. <laughs> Please, some respect at least. And on ICQ, you could, there were no photographs or anything. It was DOS-based. I think this DOS window would, it would open up. And you could search in categories to 
look for people to chat to and this little profile would pop up. Again, no photographs, just a small description. And I did some searches in the category 20 to 30 because I was 27. And Rob's profile came up and it just said Razor, that was his nickname, 28-year-old Canadian living life to the fullest because you never know when it'll end. So I thought, oh, you sound all right, so I'll send you a message. So I sent him a message uh, that said, hi, Razor, you sound pretty sharp. You may groan, but we chatted the whole night on online. We went into split screen mode so you could see what the other person was typing. Then he said, give me your phone number. I said, no, 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 give me yours. Called him. And then we talked until I had to go to work the next day. To this day, I have never been so sure of anything in my life ever. Within a week, I'd booked my flight to Canada to go and see him. Before I got there, he'd booked his flight to come back and stay with me in Switzerland for a month. When he got to Switzerland, within a few days, he called his boss, he quit his job, called his parents. He said, not coming back because we're getting married. And that was it. So we got married five months after meeting online, 10 weeks after meeting face to face, and it'll be 22 years in June. <laughs> so I so don't think of myself as more romantic, though, to be fair, someone on the podcast did call me one. But I just got chills. Like my hair was standing on end, everything. Because when you said, I've never been so sure of anything in my life, and then started talking about booking the flights and he was coming for a month and all this. Typically, that story ends with, this is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is what a lot of people said it would. And, and it didn't. I can't, even now when I think about it, it gives me goosebumps as well, because we would speak on the phone multiple times a day, hours at a time. Our phone bills were ridiculous because it wasn't a flat fee at that point. It was international call charges. <laughs> so it's bad. But it was just, I just knew. That's the only way I can describe it. When people say, when it sounds a bit cliche and it sounds cheesy, but that is what happened to us. And don't get me wrong, there have been times where I wanted to strangle him over 22 years and vice versa. And we had three kids in 16 months. So there, there was pressure there and deciding to move to Canada and him being a stay-at-home dad and things like that. But we've had a great marriage so far. So yeah, here's to the next 22 years as far as I'm concerned. So you said during that, that he's a stay-at-home dad and that you had 16, 16 kids. <laughs> I hope not. Steady <laughs> on. Three kids in 16 months. You did mention when we were emailing that you had the three kids in 16 months, but you're not an alien. So there's a set of twins in there. Yes. And how old are they now? The eldest is 17, almost 17 and a half. And our twins just turned 16 last week. And so they were growing up this whole time as you're rising through the ranks of the company that you're mentioning, yes? Yes. Before we had kids, Rob and I talked about what that would look like very early on, actually, in the relationship. And he said that he would be happy to put his career on the back burner. So basically, we wanted to have children, but I was a shareholder at the company where I was working. I'd gone back to university to get a Bachelor of Science in Business, and I didn't, my, the role that I had did not lend itself to working part time. And I certainly didn't want to quit. I, I did not want to quit uh, and be a stay at home mum. And when I did get pregnant, that's what we stuck with because Rob felt very strongly that he would like some one of us to stay at home with the baby. And I said, I don't want to work part time because I can't and I, I don't want to quit because I don't want to. And he said, fine, I will. And it was very interesting because that was in 2003. 
And I remember announcing at work that I was pregnant and my boss and I, he's absolutely phenomenal. I've, I've had, I've been very lucky with the bosses I've had. There were no glass ceilings to shatter because they didn't implement any. As far as they were concerned, they wanted the best person for the job. And when I got pregnant, or actually before I got pregnant, we had this agreement at Christmas or at the end of the year when I had my appraisal, or whatever, I would say to him, I think we might be not planning on having kids next year. That kind of, And some people will go, oh my God, you can't do that. But we had such a great relationship. I loved that company. I often joked and called it my firstborn and I was a shareholder. So it was a different dynamic. And I remember saying to him, Rob and I were going to try and, and have a baby, but don't worry. We've discussed it. I'm not going to go part-time. I want to continue working full-time and Rob's going to be a stay-at-home dad. He said, oh, that's amazing. That's great. But when I announced it in the management meeting, there were a team of managers we got together. I was the only woman. And most of the other guys around the table laughed. They laughed because they thought the idea was so ridiculous and there's no way that would work. And even within Rob's circle of friends and family, there were some people who thought it was absolutely ridiculous. Why would he quit his job? Who was he married to? Who was this woman who was obviously manipulating him into giving up his career or pausing his career? And he was a stay-at-home dad for seven years until we came here. It's so interesting to me because... That doesn't feel like it should be a story that somebody was a stay-at-home dad. But when you think about it, even now, it's not as traditional. And I don't think it's not as common to say to a woman, I can't believe you're going to give up your career. And even now, I feel like it's still expected. Oh, you're going to have a baby and then you'll probably at least take some time off. Maybe not quit your career, but it's just nobody would laugh if you said I'm going to stay at home by any means. No, that's right. It was an interesting experience, but we, we just... We ignored all of that. It was what is right for our family, what works for us. And Rob was absolutely great with the boys. He got a bit more than he bargained for because we had Leo, the eldest. And because we had trouble, I had trouble getting pregnant, we decided to throw caution to the wind pretty quickly and not try for another, but not try, you know, (laughs) if that makes sense. So just basically say if you get pregnant quickly, then because For Leo, it took about two years. So we thought, well, if I have to have treatment again, and then it could take another two years, and then they'll be two, almost three years apart. And I got pregnant the first month, and then it was twins, identical twins, which has nothing to do with the fertility treatment. I I, I was on Clomid, which stimulates your ovaries, and that's probably too much information, but that's what it was. And they were identical, so it had absolutely zero to do with the fertility treatment and just someone's sense of humor or irony or whatever it was, call it what you will, somewhere thinking, ha, ha, ha. So, yeah. I found out on my 33rd birthday, I knew that I was pregnant because I'd done a a test and Rob was in Canada visiting family, had just come back the day before and we went for the ultrasound at the doctor's and I could still picture him sitting in the corner with Leo on a chair. Leo's tiny, he's six, seven months old. He'd done the calculations thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to be 16 months apart. This is going to be crazy. And I'd had a lot of ultrasounds. I remember looking at the screen thinking, OMG, there's more than one. And I actually thought there were four. (laughs) So I'm freaking out, not saying anything. And I remember saying to the doctor in this high-pitched, nervous voice, how many are there? And she said, there are two, but I'm just checking to see if there are more. Because one twin or one baby can hide another, apparently. One embryo can hide another. 
And I just remember Rob's face looking up, eyes as big as dinner plates, because we there were no twins in the family. They're identical, which don't run in families anyway. I did all the research on this. Oh my gosh, how did this happen? Twins. They were. I almost carried them to term. They were huge. I was huge, the size of a house, the size of an estate, actually. I was massive. And we had them 16 months after Leah was born. So he got a lot more than he bargained for. If it was you, people would just be like, oh, of course, she's got a lot to deal with. Whereas it's like, oh, how is this poor guy going to deal with three kids all at once? I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. So he, he deserves a medal, honestly, because three, three kids, 16 months, three kids under three is a lot, but three kids under 18 months, 16, 18 months, it's all the same at that point. It was incredibly stressful for him and stressful for me too, because I was the sole breadwinner at that point. So that brings its own stress and, and a high level role, which was everything I'd always wanted. And it was interesting. <laughs> for him to have this reaction. So he would be fawned over by women. Oh God, you're stay at home dad, that's amazing. Give him a medal and a crown. But equally so, when women do that, they, they just get, a, they barely get an, an acknowledgement. Like you said, it's normal. But uh, there were a couple of instances that I experienced where people said, oh, you work full time? Yeah. But you have children? Yes. How many do you have? Three. You have three children and you work full time? Yeah, but my husband's a stay-at-home dad. Oh, well, that's okay then. As if I needed their permission. Oh, now I have your permission. Thank you very much. I'll continue forging my career. So it was very interesting to see that the different reactions, it was rounds of applause and glory for Rob and well-deserved. But for me, it was mild disdain and perhaps a bit of criticism in there because I wasn't staying at home with the kids. And that came not necessarily from men, actually, but interestingly, more from some women. It definitely sounds like it's worked out for you so far. <laughs> so you showed them. <laughs> yeah, I think, the, the, I think the main thing was just to ignore that. And we did what was right for our family. But you asked about how we ended up in Canada. Yes. So here's a little bit of a buyer beware story. So I, from a young age, said I wanted to have my own company and I was a shareholder in this company, a small shareholder, but a shareholder nonetheless. I had a big career. It was fantastic. And Rob had said, I'll be a stay-at-home dad. That's, he signed up for that and he was happy to do that. And we went on our merry way. But interestingly, as time went by, he became unhappy because he kept seeing his career going back to work, slipping behind the horizon. because. The school system in Switzerland is such that, or was such, it's probably changed now, but the school system with three is very difficult because the kids, most of them, come home at lunch. Here in Canada, the three kids are in the same school, they start at the same time, finish at the same time, they stay there from nine until four or 8.30 until 3.30, or, and that works great if you want to work. During the week, five days a week, same school, same hours. In Switzerland, it was same school, different hours, changes every school year, come home over lunchtime, very tricky. With one kid, not a problem. You can manage with two probably as well, but three, especially so close together, it gets very difficult. So he couldn't just not see how he was going to get back to work. Plus, we lived in a very small village. We lived in a village with maybe a thousand people. He didn't know any other stay-at-home dads. Shocker. It was 2003, 2004, 2005. And so he, like many women who give up their careers and stay at home with the kids, felt very isolated. 
very cut off. And he wasn't the type to go and do coffee mornings with mums and stuff. So it was very stressful, A, with three kids that, that young all at the same time. But also he just didn't see when he'd get back to his career and, and just felt very cut off. Meanwhile, I had everything I ever wanted. I had the big career, I had the big salary, you know, the ego and all the rest of it that, that went with being the CEO of an IT recruitment company. And it was great. It really was. But the one thing I didn't have was time. I very often, I would get up and leave the house before the kids were up. I would very often come home after they'd gone to bed and I traveled frequently as well. So I didn't see Rob much. I didn't see the kids much. And I felt like I was missing out on so many things. And that is a fact for whoever works, male, female, it doesn't matter. This belief that we're told as women, you can have it all. You can have a career. You can have kids. And you can. I have kids. I have this big career. But what you can't have, what you cannot do, is be in two places at the same time. So either you have to choose to spend more time at the office or you have to choose to see and see your kids less or you choose to see your kids more, perhaps to the detriment of your career of work. That's just a fact. And sometimes I get really frustrated when I see these things about you can have it all. The amount of pressure that puts on women to think that they can have it all because you, you cannot be in two places at once. And I felt that. So Rob and I didn't really talk about that. Because I had what I wanted. I felt like I couldn't complain. I felt like I couldn't say anything because he'd given everything up for me twice, once to, to move to, to Switzerland and again in his career. So I, I had to just get on with it because I had now what I'd always wanted. And he felt he couldn't say anything because he'd volunteered to stay at home with the kids. So we were bumbling along, neither of us particularly happy with what we'd done and the choices we'd made ultimately. Until we came together and said, is this still working for you? <laughs> Maybe we need a bit of a rethink. And that was the kicker, very long story, to the very short question, how did we end up in Canada? That was how we ended up in Canada, because we felt that life balance-wise, you know, work-life work balance in Canada would offer us more opportunities, and it has. When you headed to Canada, what was the scenario you were heading to? Did Rob have a job? Did you have something planned or lined up? Or were you just both going, we're going to go there and see what happens because it should be better? So I found a job. The company that I was working for in IT recruitment was bought by a larger group. And they offered me when they, I knew one of the people who was working in Canada, the CEO of the company in Canada, and he offered me a job here. And so I took it, but I didn't stay very long because the commute was hell on earth. It was about an hour and a half each way. And I ended up seeing the family even less, which wasn't the point of coming to Canada. I remember saying to Rob, we may as well have stayed in Switzerland because what was the point? Now we have no friends, no family here. And now I'm seeing you guys even less. No, I don't want to do this. So I'd always had in the back of my mind that I would start my own business. And I had this revolutionary idea in HR. And Rob started up, he worked for a couple of companies. He's an electrician by trade and then started up his own business, which has been hugely successful. So he got back into the group, did what he always wanted to do, which was start his own company. And it's worked out brilliantly. So I thought, well, I'm going to start this HR company. And it was a very simple concept, an online platform where overstaffed and understaffed company could come together and share human resources. 
Think of it as the Airbnb of people, of skills. And I thought it was brilliant. And everyone I spoke to said it was absolutely fantastic. It was brilliant. This was perfect. And I took it to market and it crashed and burned within the first year. It just died. Everybody said it was a great idea, but nobody wanted to use it. <laughs> so, so that was that. And it was horrible. I think that was that was a really bleak time for me because we'd moved to Canada, no friends or family around. Rob's from New Brunswick, but we decided to move to the Toronto area. I just pushed my career off a cliff. That's how I felt. I'd gone from being the CEO of an IT recruitment company, lots of ego there, to nothing. I felt like a complete and utter loser. I really did. And looking back at it now, if I could go back and say to myself, just enjoy it, just <laughs> take some time off, figure out what you want to do, just enjoy it, spend time with your kids. That that was the trouble. I couldn't live in the moment. I, I was always thinking about what am I going to do? What's going to come next? I'd always been successful in my career. So this was the first time that I really got walloped around the face and failed. You said that you had an ego around being a CEO, which of course would, and you were so successful. I can imagine just going from these days, even when once you'd moved to Canada, these days that were too long and you didn't have enough time. I spoke to somebody a few weeks ago who talked about when she was retiring, she made a plan for the next year because she was so worried about having time. She also was a very successful career-driven person to go to that unexpectedly because the company did sound like an amazing idea. I think something like that now, <laughs> it was probably so far ahead of its time because I feel like now when you say it, it's, oh, of course, that makes perfect sense. I would totally use that to have something like that crash and burn and maybe feel for the first time that something you touched wasn't successful. Yes, it was It was not fun. When I look at it now, I think I came here, I came to Canada as an immigrant. I speak the language. I visually until I open my mouth and people hear my accent. I, I don't look what some people would assume an immigrant to look like. So I really had nothing to complain about. You shut up and <laughs> just get on with it. And stop your moaning. And there are people who come here who have wealth and breadth of experience and degrees and can't find jobs and, and who have a by far light years uh, harder time than I do but I, I couldn't really see that at the time. Canada has taught me that which for which I'm very grateful actually to be a lot more open-minded and to be very thankful for, for what I have. So yeah looking back at that I understand looking back at myself 10 years ago why I was so down but on the other hand you know, get over yourself. That's how I feel about it with, with 10 years more of wisdom and distance I think. Once somebody said to me when I was at my lowest point, hopefully ever, but at least to date, that you can't compare your own sadness or your own difficulties to other people. But I feel like one of the reasons that I was able to move on is because I did say to myself, shut up, woman, because it could always be so much worse. At the end of the day, I'm in a fairly privileged place. And exactly, I do have to be open-minded about the fact that I do have opportunity. Exactly. So obviously you weren't in a good place regardless of whether you feel like you should have been or not, but you turned to writing. How did the HR company makes perfect sense? Yes, I've been in HR. I'm going to make this company. Suddenly you're going to be a writer. What happened? My grandmother, so my mum's side, my grandmother used to tell stories. She was a seamstress. Unfortunately, that talent did not get passed down. I cannot sew, knit or anything like that. I can bake, but she used to tell stories. She used to make up stories and she would send cassette tapes. She would record herself telling these stories and send cassette tapes over to, to my sister and, and me. 
And they were such a joy. And I still have them, actually. Rob put them on uh, CD for me, so I still have my grandmother's voice. And they're just so lovely. So I think that was, I remembered that. And I used to love writing at school. I used to love it when it was just either when we were being read to and my mum and dad used to read to us all the time or at school when we could write, whether it was essays or stories. Stories, that was my favourite thing to write. Just I'd say to the teacher, oh, so miss, we, we, haven't, we haven't had a writing assignment for a long time. And then people would start telling me to shut up or throw things at me because they didn't want to do it. Total nerd. And I'd say, can you just put a word on the blackboard? Just write one word on the blackboard and, and then we can use that as a, a, for inspiration. And then people would really seriously start telling me to shut up. And I loved that. It was just so much fun. But then after school, it was all about career. I did my degrees and I, ne- I didn't write creatively at all. I wrote emails and newsletters and, and company policies and, and remuneration plans and things like that, but never anything creatively. But I still, I always had in the back of my mind that one day, maybe perhaps if I ever had time brackets, ha ha ha, I would write a novel. And so when the company here in Canada crashed and burned, and I was moping around, Rob said to me, look, he's always the voice of reason. If you could do anything, what would you do? And I literally said, I don't know. He said, what are you passionate about? I don't know. I don't don't have any passions. Woe is me again. Because I didn't actually have any hobbies because that sounds so sad. Because apart from career and family, that was all that time allowed, honestly. And so I had none. And I remember he just let me mope around for a bit longer. And then he said, listen, you can use this opportunity to reinvent yourself and do whatever it is you want. But the thing that scared me was was failure. Because what if I try something different? What if I try something new and I fail again? I don't want to feel like this anymore. Whatever I try, I need to be successful. But one day I had an idea for a book and it was the story of a 40-something woman who may or may not have some curly brown hair and who may or may not be thinking about the choices she made and where she'd ended up in her life. Sounds familiar. I had this idea of this woman who wakes up one morning married to her first ex-boyfriend and she's getting a glimpse it's an alternate reality she figures out although initially she has no idea what's going on but it's an alternate reality where she's getting a glimpse of what she asked for what would my life have been like if I hadn't met my husband if I'd married my first boyfriend it's the love child of sliding doors and groundhog day have you seen those movies yes yes that's it's called time after time it's a rom-com and I had this idea for this story and it was so clear in my mind so I took the kids to an indoor playground went with the laptop under my arm lined up snacks and water bottles and said to the kids go play and I wrote the outline for that book in about three hours the entire the whole outline it was just so clear in my in my mind and it the idea of the story didn't change up to publication the content did But the actual story and the ending changed a little bit. But what happens, the essence of the story didn't change is what I'm trying to say. And so I wrote it and I I wrote it in about six weeks or something stupidly ridiculous. And I sent it to my mum, who, bless her, said it was great. And I sent it to agents who said it wasn't. And a few of them were very lovely and wrote back and said, the idea is really good, but the execution is flawed. I thought, okay, I can work on the execution. 
So I took writing courses because I was very arrogant in my approach. I was very naive and, and arrogant, mostly arrogant, thinking I can read and I read, therefore I can write. Turns out it's not that simple. But the, the fact that I was naive helped me a lot because if I knew how difficult it was to, to get to publication, maybe I would have quit. Although I'm a bit like a dog with a bone. When I get an idea in my head and I want to do something, generally I'll follow through. And so I just went for it. I wrote this manuscript, got rejected an awful lot, felt down in the dumps because of it, but decided, I'll show you, all you who have rejected me, oh, I'm going to get this published. And I kept going. And in the end, I got an agent who sold the book to Avon or HarperCollins Avon UK. It published in 2016. And after that, I got a two-book deal with HarperCollins Mira in North America, who then bought my next, hold on, three. But I then switched to suspense, actually. I didn't stay with rom-com. I switched to the dark side. I won an only rom-com. I was going to say, I don't know exactly how it works when you get a multi-book deal, but they must have been in for a real surprise when you went from this nice rom-com story. And everybody's been listening and they can probably tell that you're a very nice person. <laughs> but you've gone from the rom-com to suddenly psychological, suspenseful. I actually was reading some of the various reviews. And one of my favorite things was the nine of fiction's worst mothers <laughs> that you are on this list. That's right. Fiction's worst mothers. <laughs> one of my characters, yes, yes. Not me, not me. <laughs> or the description of one of your books, beauty, wealth, success. She's got it all and it should have been mine. <laughs> that is sister dear. Yes, sister dear. I'm very intrigued how you went from A, this rom-com, very sweet sounding story into the suspense <laughs> book. And how does it, how does a publisher react when they give you this multi-book deal? But were they like, oh, she's switching her tune. So time after time went to HarperCollins UK. And while that book was on submission, I started writing my second one, The Neighbours. And as soon as I started writing it, I realized that this was darker. It was, it was grittier. The characters, everything wouldn't necessarily work out for everyone at the end. It wouldn't necessarily be a happy ending for everyone. And I loved that. I loved this, these characters that I was developing who, who had multiple issues, who were so layered and who were so messed up. And I just needed to know what was going to happen to them. I had a rough outline, but I think partway through I chucked it out and, and the characters went off in a different direction anyway. And we sent that one to HarperCollins UK and they weren't phased actually. They liked it, but they had for time after time for the rom-com, they'd given me a one book deal with an option for the second one. So they had first dibs, basically. They could look at the, the second one and decide first whether they wanted to make an offer or not. And with time after time, they'd offered me a digital first deal. So that setup was, we'll, we'll release it as an ebook. If it does well, we will release it in print. It is still ebook only. So that tells you all you need to know about how successful it was. It's done okay. It, it didn't knock the socks off any bestseller list, that's for sure. But what that did allow us to do or allow my agent to do was go out to other publishers and pitch me, but not pitch me as a debut author. This was my second novel. Because it was a digital first deal, or digital only in the end, and because I was being pitched as a, this is a second book, but she's switching genres, it was okay. And it was still, it was HarperCollins who acquired The Neighbours, so my second book, and Her Secrets on my, my third. I think it was a combination of, they really liked the book, time after time, hadn't done super well, it wasn't this massive bestseller. So I already had an audience who expect 
who expected more of the same. So they were okay with me going into suspense. In fact, my editor, she said, I love this book. This was The Neighbours. I love this book, but I think we can make it even more suspenseful. So they pushed me even more into the domestic suspense arena, which I'm very happy with. And it's always funny how, how with a bit of distance, you start looking back at say the last few years and go, oh, that's why I did ABC. And someone asked me, why did you write a rom-com first? And I wrote it when I was really unhappy. And I think in a way I was writing my own happy ending. It was joyful to be with characters where things were going to work out. Whereas when things got back on track and Rob and I are fine and the kids, and it was then that I really decided, okay, I, I want to explore messed up characters and what happens when you put very normal, ordinary people, such as myself, very ordinary, very, everything's fine, and then drop them into a situation that is high stress, extraordinary and very difficult. And what happens? So it's an exploration of my own fears. But also, I'm a rule follower. I'm not very good at breaking rules, never have been you know, generally on time. Actually, I'm always early, pretty much. <laughs> don't break rules. If I get on the train and I know people don't check tickets, I still buy a ticket. And I just don't. I just don't, I'm just a rule follower. I'm just a bit bland and boring, I think. We already established that you're a nerd and I'm listening to this and I'm like, yep, that's me too. I'm a huge nerd. <laughs> Whenever my kids come home with forms to sign, I'll sign them right away. You know, if they have assignments, I'll make sure they're on time. It's just a total nerd. But my characters aren't necessarily. In Sister Dear, I have very horrible, nasty, evil characters in the book I'm writing now and the book that releases next year. So, yeah, it's an exploration of fears, but it's also an exploration of what you can do if you're evil, which I don't do in real life, but I can do safely on the page and no one gets hurt. No one was hurt in the making of this book. So. <laughs> yes, I like to take kickboxing now and again. And I have to say, I don't really beat people up in real life, but I can imagine people <laughs> that I really want to beat up when I'm taking the class and all the stress is gone. I actually have to say I'm a little bit mad at you. I've been really busy over the past few weeks. And yesterday I finally sat down and was like, I'm reading Her Secret Son. I'm, I'm going to start reading it. So I really have some background. And there's a lot of reviews that talk about it being a page turner. And I was like, I can't, I, I do not have the time to keep reading this. And I kept reading it and putting it back down. And <laughs> so that I will be finishing that book in the next probably day or two, because it was just like, and you said that eventually you find out that these people have bad things happen to them and whatever. This book just starts off, bam. <laughs> oh, yes. Poor Josh. I feel so bad for him. He's one of my favorite characters that I've created. So he's, he, which is very briefly, he, he's been with Grace for five years. She has a seven-year-old son, Logan. And chapter one, she dies. <laughs> chapter one, it was like page one, he gets the call. <laughs> Yeah, he gets the call, freak accident, and she's a goner. And he decides to, to he wants to have legal guardianship for Logan because he loves this kid more than anything. And then he goes looking for birth certificates and whatnot and, and can't find documents. And that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to spoil anything. But I loved spending time with him because he has his own demons. He's, he had, had uh, his parents died and he had trouble with alcoholism and stuff. And oh, I felt so bad. I kept, as I was writing it, I kept apologizing in my head. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry because he's such a good guy and that was a really interesting book to write actually because it's all from a man's point of view so that was my third book i would written point of view character in the neighbors 
but never an entire book. So that was quite the challenge to, to carry a man's point of view. So I'd ask Rob sometimes, does this sound like a dude? Would, would you say this? Would you, would you think this? So that was really fun to do. So far, it's been really fun to read. But like I said, ugh, I had things I needed to get done. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. I'm definitely clearing my schedule. And it's perfect timing. So I clear a couple of days where I'm going to get through it very quickly. I can tell you that for sure. So I think we've talked a lot about your driving passions and your perfectionism. And I ask you to bring a quote. And I did say it was going to be a cheesy quote, but you being from Switzerland or having lived in Switzerland for so long, love cheese. I do. <laughs> you brought a great one. And I think it, I, now that I've talked to you more, it really makes a lot of sense why it resonates with you. But would you be willing to share your quote with us? I can. I have a sign that my one of my boys made and it says, making mistakes is better than faking perfection. I don't know who said it, but I have that. I kept that. It's off my pin board. And I really like that quote because making mistakes has taught me a lot and I've made many. But one thing I really like, and this is my one of my previous bosses who realized this on my behalf. He said, do you really like being put into a situation or being given a task that you know nothing about? and finding your way. And I remember that once during a, a management meeting, for the IT recruitment company, we decided that we were going to open a company, a sister company in Germany. And everyone around the table said, yeah, we all agree. Yeah, we're going to do that. And Hannah, you're going to do that. And I said, yeah, sure. Absolutely. I had no idea how to open a subsidiary in Germany. Not a clue. But I knew I would find people who could because one thing I know from business is that you can't do everything yourself, nor should you try. And you should surround yourself with people who can do certain things far better than you can. Your job is to lead. That was my job, to lead this great team, which was awesome. It was brilliant. Aside from the fact I never had any time, I'll put that little caveat in there. So yeah, I think that making mistakes is better than faking perfection. Not an Instagram filter. No, I do have one picture with a filter, but but generally with me, what is what you get. That's who I am. I don't buy into the whole, I'm going to pretend my life is absolutely perfect. And what is just a fraction of perfection <laughs> and everything else falls apart. That, so I think that's why it really resonated with me. It's it, I like people who, who are very human, flaws and all, warts and all. That's what interests me, including the characters that I write about. They are far from perfect. I've heard one that's similar that's done is better than perfect or done is better than good. Now, I don't like done is better than good because I can't do anything. I, I refuse to do anything that's not at least good. Come on. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like done is better than perfect as someone who has wasted a lot of time or spent too much time trying to make something perfect or trying to be perfect, which as a human being, not going to happen. Never going to happen. I am definitely getting to the point in my life where I'm like, you know what? Get it done. Stop faking perfection. This is who you are. And I do think maybe that's one of those things that that comes a bit with, I'll say, being over 35. But yeah, <laughs> once, once you hit a certain age, you say, this is just me. Yes, yes, I, I completely agree. There's many things. I'm going to be 50 next, uh, well, in May. And there's a lot of things that, that I don't particularly like about getting older. But in my head, I'm still stuck at about 30. So that's okay. But I think there is that certain... <sighs> I don't know, there is that serenity. I don't know if that's the right word that does come with age where you just think, ah, I just, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to bother with pretending to be something I'm not. This is who I am and that's okay. There's a lot more self-acceptance, I think, that comes with age. I hope. I don't know. Ask me in 10 years. <laughs> so 
I can't let you go without talking about your latest project, because even though you're working on a couple of books as well, Mm -hmm. you have First Chapter Fun, which is something that you came up with in lockdown, which sounds so fun and sounds like such a good reason to get out of bed in the morning. And First Chapter Fun was an idea that I had while speaking to a few author friends in a group chat. This was at the beginning of lockdown. So it was about middle of March. We all had books coming out. Sister Dear was scheduled or, or did publish in May. And many of us had books coming out and we we all saw all of our events being cancelled one by one, library events and book launch events and interviews and in-person stuff. And we're all freaking out thinking, well, how is this going to work? We have books coming out. Nobody's going to want to read them. Everyone's going to be just fixated on the pandemic. And what can we do to help one another? So I piped up semi-jokingly saying, like, I don't know, I could read the first chapter of your books online, live thinking that maybe half a dozen or perhaps a dozen people would agree to this madness. And not a word of a lie. Within two days, I had 40 people lined up, which turned into over 50. And I read every single day because I did not think the must-do hair and makeup thing through very well. So I was live on camera every day on Facebook, And on Instagram at the same time, the technology learning curve was steep. I can tell you that. So I have webcam will be Facebook and my phone with Instagram and broadcasting at the same time and all of us. And so every day, it was 11.30 Eastern time up until September, I read the first chapter of a different book, not mine, at 11.30 a.m. Eastern. And it became such a joy. It was immediately such a joy. If you've watched some of the first episodes, you can see me bumbling a little bit because I didn't really have a system. And now I do. Now we have a whole system. And within a couple of, I think it was about a week or so, fellow crime writer, Hank Philippi Ryan, who's hugely successful. She's written 12 books. She has, I think, 38 Emmys. She's also a reporter. Just this powerhouse woman incredible she contacted me because I was reading for her I was scheduled to read for her and she said what are you doing with first chapter fun after May and I said I'm going to finish on May the 8th because I have sister dear coming out I've got to focus on the promotion for that and also my publishers expect me to write another book I can't just do first chapter fun because it wasn't just reading half an hour a day there's all the prep there's the the graphics and practicing the reads because you don't want to read something and then there's a word in there you have no idea how to pronounce and look like a complete muppet so I'd practice that and all the rest of it she said you can't stop because there were, were more and more people tuning in and she suggested that we team up so now as of it was as of May 12th now we read at 12.30 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday and every Thursday, days with a T with Hannah and Hank, 12.30 Eastern. The first chapter of a different book, not ours, although we do read from ours when we have new releases, we'll read from each other's books. But the whole idea was to help promote other authors, give back to the writing, reading community, which has been so supportive ever since I, I bumbled my way into writing. And to make sure that everybody's to-be-read list stays completely out of control. <laughs> so that's our mission, to bring new-to-you authors, new-to-you books, uh, and help you discover. And it's just so much fun. And Hank and I are not professional audiobook narrators by any stretch of the imagination. I've done some voice work for Air Canada and, and Flash Liquid Gel and whatnot, but that's about it. But it is so much fun. And we have this brilliant community. So on Facebook, it's a group called called First Chapter Fun. And on Instagram, the account is First Chapter Fun. And, and we post 
Hank makes these legendary teaser videos for each book. We post fun facts about the authors and about their books. The authors send us these five fun fact videos where they name five things in their books. And we're just building this community where people can come escape the pandemic. That was really the idea behind it, help promote other authors, but also give people a half an hour twice a week where they can just come and listen to a book, discover a new author, see their online friends because people have become friends as well and just have a place where you can escape from the weirdness that has been and still is to a certain extent 2020 and 2021. What a wonderful idea. Personally, being in the theatre industry myself, everyone in the theatre industry is having the same kind of moments, you know, what, and I hadn't thought about it with books, but obviously there is the huge, the huge release and the traveling and the promoting the book. And yeah, without having that, what do you do? So you've come up with such a wonderful way to support your community, to support it helps your professional community, all the authors involved, but also just the people that do get to sit for half an hour and just go, okay, I can just get the world and listen. And like you said, what's better than a huge long to read list? Yes, exactly. Exactly. We've got you covered. And we we actually save every episode. There are over 100, close to 120. And we've saved them all on First Chapter Fun, both on Instagram and IGTV and also in the Facebook group. So people can go back and, and watch every single one of them if they wish to their heart's content. There's probably over 50 hours of viewing pleasure that people can go and, uh, and discover new books. And we have all kinds of books. So Hank and I both write crime, thrillers, suspense, but we have historical fiction. We've had one or two fantasy books. We've had sci-fi, general fiction as well. We've had, we have all kinds of romance. It's just fun. And we actually have reads scheduled right up until September, which is completely nuts, but wonderful at the same time. It really has been a, a fun project. And some people have written to us and they've said they schedule their meetings around First Chapter Fun. They block the time off. <laughs> Even though they can watch the recordings later, they still block the time. That is their lunch break. And that's when they think, no, I'm not scheduled anything for that half hour. It's about half an hour each time. And it, it's just lovely. And I hope, obviously, with everything moving online, when we get back to normal, that these online events will still continue because we have such a a broad reach online. In-person events are wonderful and I love them. I love meeting readers. I love meeting fellow authors and I would certainly never want that to go away. But I hope there's a hybrid where there's also online stuff because geography can get in the way of people coming to events, geography, weather, abilities. My mum, for example, was disabled. She wouldn't be able to get out to an event. So having online events is absolutely perfect because people can join from wherever they are um, and whatever physical condition they might have. And a bonus thing for online events for me, selfishly, I never have to say, does my bum look big in this? Ever. Wait a minute. We just said that we were to the point that we were going to be like, this is me and I don't care and I'm not perfect. (laughs) Yeah. When it comes to my bum, I still say that. (laughs) I worry about my bum looking too big too, but wait a minute. We are completely going back on our word. (laughs) We are, aren't we? Must do better. Yes, but I would like to be, I don't care if I'm perfect, but a perfect bum would not go, <laughs> would not go this. <laughs> I'd be all right with that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I think that ship might have sailed for me. I think that ship has left the dock. It's gone. But who knows? No, I'm still, reach. come on, ship. Don't leave me yet. <laughs> oh. 
Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. It's all about our perfect intellects and sparkling senses absolutely. of humor. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I've had so much fun getting to know a little bit about you. And sorry, I have to go now because I have reading to do. I need to know what happens. I can tell you if you like, ruin the surprise. No, no don't ruin the surprise. No, 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 no. I need to know what happens to poor Josh. But definitely, hopefully everybody will be really inspired by your story because I do think you've had a really interesting life and I wish you the best of success for the next couple of books. Tell us again when we should expect the next. So you will remember me. So it's less of you will remember me and more of you will remember me. That one publishes, you will. Yes, yes, you will. That one publishes on May 25th and 2021. And I am now putting the finishing touches on book six, which does not have a title because I am rubbish at thinking of titles. My editor is brilliant, so I'm sure it'll have a brilliant title by the time we're done. And that one will publish sometime in 2022. I'm on a, on a book a year schedule, so it's, it's probably going to be spring 2022. Oh my gosh, that just led me to think of all these other questions I want to ask you about how you write so fast and how do you come up with all of your ideas? And I guess that'll have part two. <laughs> sure. I would. This has been so much fun. I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you and I will come back and chat some more whenever you'll have. Yes. When the next book's out, let's chat again. And I will definitely be first chapter funning. Oh, excellent. Yes. Yes. I'll see you there. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening. In case you're wondering, I did finish Her Secret Son in about a day and proceeded to email Hannah to let her know just how twisted she really is. You should have a read. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed the second chapter, be sure to go on and leave us a five-star review. Tell all your friends. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.